bring the word to him. God, we thank you for Kyle. God, we thank you for uh, your spirit that you've given him, God. We thank you for what you've put upon his heart and his mind. God, we ask right now that you would even teach Kyle in this moment, that you would teach us through Kyle and what you've already taught him. God, I pray that you would keep him focused on you, God, that he would be uh, seeing even right now, just dreams and visions of you as he's uh, preaching your word, God. I pray that you would bless him, God, and that you would uh, bless us by his word, God. Keep our minds focused on you and not straying to the left or right, God, thinking about what you're saying to us through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, first I want to thank you guys, and I want to thank God, I guess, ultimately, because uh, you guys prepared this whole thing for me perfectly. Everything that you guys were saying, I was like, yeah, yeah, it'd be all pumped up and everything, too, so. Um, I was actually really, really, really excited about tonight when uh, when God gave me a title for my sermon. Just the title, I was like, yo, okay, this made my night, when I, when I, my, made my day, yeah, you can ask some of my friends and family that came up, and I was like, yo, guys, check this out, all right. So I got a slide for you. Via Dolorosa. So some of you know that I like Latin, right? And this is a Latin phrase. Via Dolorosa. It means the way of sorrow. Now, traditionally, uh, Via Dolorosa was the, what they used to refer to the road that Jesus took from the judgment seat of Pilate to the cross, to where the cross was, and he carried his cross. Traditionally, that's what they referred to that road as, was Via Dolorosa. But I want to use it to kind of look at this place where we're at uh, in the story of Christ. So uh, his, his way of sorrow began as we saw uh, back at the triumphal entry. He felt a, a sense of sorrow over his people when he looked at the temple and he knew what was going to be happening. And then he felt this sense of sorrow as he was praying. He said, Father, if this cup could pass, let it pass. And he said, but thy will be done. But he was feeling that sorrow. And so he's been feeling it this whole week as we talk about Passion Week. It's that passion that he had, that love that he had that he was willing to endure the sorrow pushed through. So Via Dolorosa, I was excited about it. Hopefully you'll be as excited as I am. It's cool. It's a fun phrase, and it means the way of sorrow. Um, first thing I wanted to say was that uh, as we talk about the journey to the cross, it is the king's way. The journey of the cross is the king's way. If that confuses you, good. Proverbs 20, 28, I put it up there for you. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. See, Jesus is a king. Right? Ultimately, Jesus is a king. He had kingship prior to coming to earth, and then he was a king after he ascended. Right, But his journey to the cross was him ultimately saying, I am the king, and I am going to secure that throne by showing you steadfast love. He was fulfilling the scripture that said, steadfast love and faithfulness is what preserves the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So it was because of steadfast love that Jesus was following this way of sorrow. He was willing to endure the sorrow to show that to show his steadfast love. It, now, remember, it wasn't just physical suffering, as we will see. It was the sorrow caused by the weight of sin. Keep that in mind. We're going to see a lot of Jesus' physical suffering. But it was the sorrow caused by the weight of sin that was pressing down on Jesus. But the greatest act of love he could display was to suffer and to die for sinners. And so that is that is why it's the king's way. The Via Dolorosa, this way of suffering is the king's way because the ultimate love that this king could show was to give his life and to suffer for you and for I, for those who believe in him. <clears throat> and so just to give you a quick picture, a quick glimpse of where we're headed, uh, we're going to take a brief look at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. You guys can be turning to Mark 14. That's where we're going to start off. So we're going to take a brief look at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, and then we're going to do a quick overview of Jesus before Pilate, and then we're going to end with some practical implications to Via Dolorosa, the gospel and suffering. So those three things, that's kind of where we're going to be heading, and I'm going to kind of keep you guys uh, alongside me and uh, so you can follow along. So we're in Mark 14. I'm going to start in verse 53. So follow along with me. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests 
and the elders and the scribes came together. By the way, if you, if you don't know where we're at, this is directly after the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested. And so these, these, um, the captain of the guard brought them back to the high priest. So that's where we're picking up the story. And in 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Stop right there for a second. So they bring Jesus before Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests, and the whole council, which is the Sanhedrin. That's what the whole council was referred to in that day. And it says that they were seeking testimony against Jesus. So they're putting together this trial uh, for Jesus. Now the interesting thing is, though, that they had already delivered the sentence. If you see it, they were seeking testimony so that they may put him to death. They had already delivered the death sentence to Jesus, and they were just looking for proof to send him to the cross. Right? It's very interesting. So there's already this kind of weird trial going on, even though they want to put him into a trial. It doesn't appear to be for justice. So they were seeking testimony, but the testimony, the, uh, the sentence was already delivered. And they found no reason to put Jesus to death. Right? It says, but they found none. They found no testimony that would be, be uh, that would lead Jesus to death. So ultimately, trial over, right? Well, that is not the case, unfortunately. So continue on in verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that it, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So you've got some of these witnesses coming up. They're bearing false witness, it says. That's indicator number one of an unjust trial. Uh, as we look at injustice and just versus justice. So there's indication number one. It says that, for they bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And I, I was just thinking through this, and I was like, yo, okay, so the old, in the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy 19 specifically, there, was, uh, there were laws about witnesses. Okay, Follow along here real quick. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is false, is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from among you, from your midst, and the rest shall stand in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So that was a law in the Old Testament. That was, that was how trials were supposed to take place. There was supposed to be, if there was witnesses, then it was supposed to be weighed by ultimately the Lord, by the judges, and by the priests. So here in, in Jesus' time, we have a trial happening. And what's the first thing that we find out? Well, there were people bearing false witness. According to the law, what's supposed to happen? Well, the, per the things that that person sought against the other person was supposed to be on them. So we see a sentence of death being issued already. And then what's happening? These people bearing false witness. Guess what? Their sentence should have been death. So there's your first sign of injustice. So according to law that apparently they were trying to uphold here by giving Jesus a trial... They weren't actually keeping the law. And so it says they bore false witness. And then the next one where it says, and some came forward and they said, we heard him say, that's what they said, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. I don't know if anybody, anybody remembers the story, but is that what Jesus said? Did he say, I will destroy this temple and then raise it up in three days? Is that what he said? No. In John 2, 19, Jesus actually said, um, not there. That's okay. In John 2, 19, it says that, oh, I destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus actually said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up. That's what he told the people. 
So what happens? Here's these people, and they're bearing false witness. They're bringing lies. They're misquoting Jesus. They're twisting Jesus' words to say, yeah, he said he wanted to destroy the temple, and then he would build another one. Well, that's not actually true. So again, they're bearing false witness. They were falsely accusing Jesus. And so I was thinking through this for a moment, and I was like, well, first of all, if we've got this law that says false witnesses, if they bear false witness maliciously, right, to do the other person harm for harmful intentions, for evil intentions, uh, then they're, they're supposed to get the sentence that they would desire for another person. And then at the end there where it says, eye for an eye, life for a life, how many of you have heard that, right? And I was thinking, okay, well, that is obviously not the verse that's for the person that bumps into you at the grocery store and knocks the eggs out of your hand. You're supposed to bump their groceries out of their hand. No, that is not the verse for that. It's not the verse for if somebody calls you a name, you're supposed to call them a name back and forth, right? The Bible says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm going to call you a name if you call me a name. That actually, in this context, is not what that verse is referring to. It's referring to false witnesses. If somebody bears false witness against you, Right? The Lord is the one who's supposed to ultimately judge, but then there are judges and priests who are also supposed to judge at that time. And so I was thinking, okay, well, with the law and everything, how does this really apply to us? So I was thinking, okay, we want to be really careful with our words and accusing others and accusing somebody of slander. And then let's take that a little bit further. How often do we accuse Jesus of wrongdoing? Think about this. It's tough to fill this wall up. How do we falsely accuse Jesus when something bad comes along, something terrible comes along in our life, and we turn around and we say, ah, Jesus hates me. Jesus doesn't love me. Jesus doesn't like me. Jesus doesn't want anything good for me. Jesus likes Brian more than he likes me. Doesn't that falsely accuse Jesus? Think about that. Are you not falsely accusing Jesus when Jesus went to the cross, like Catherine said, he desired good for us through the cross, something that's terrible and bad? He actually desired good. It was the salvation of the world. And yet we're we're willing to say that Jesus does not love us, that Jesus hates us. Far be it from that. That is not the truth. And yet day in and day in and day out, when we're faced with hard times and trials, we're tempted to say, ah, the Lord doesn't love me. The Lord hates me. The Lord didn't mean for the cross to be for me. That is accusing Jesus of wrongdoing. That, doing. that is putting Jesus on trial and saying, you're wrong, Jesus. You don't love me. So false accusations against Jesus like these undercut the gospel and make Jesus a liar. So be very, very cautious with our words especially during hard times. It's, yes, hard times bring us to really, really low places, but be careful how you speak of King, of Jesus. Don't undercut the gospel. Remember the gospel Jesus went to the cross as the King to show his steadfast love. Remember that in the hardest times. <clears throat> so we have this whole story. Yeah, I, I want to remind you that we have this whole story in the Bible, right? We have the full picture of the cross and the suffering and ultimately Jesus' resurrection. We have the gospel so let us remember that and how much Jesus suffered for us in some of those hard times. <clears throat> so look back at Mark 14 again. Just let's refocus again in you know, on verse 58, where it says, uh, We heard him say, and, and uh, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So there was multiple people bearing false witness against Jesus, multiple people speaking lies against Jesus, multiple people misusing and abusing and twisting and warping Jesus' words. And so all of these people, they've already created this mistrial, what we call a mistrial in these days, right? So it's an illegitimate trial. Uh, trial excuse me. And if you remember, I mentioned it, I've mentioned it a couple, a couple times now, but in the Deuteronomy 19 passage, it says that they were supposed to bring the testimony before the Lord. Where's the Lord in this passage? We have priests, we have high priests, we have the council, but it doesn't say that anybody saw the Lord. Interesting, the Lord's right there in his presence, and yet he's not. They're not seeking the presence of the Lord, not seeking the answer of the Lord. And that, that is when we start to go a little bit towards that injustice side, right? So we're talking about injustice versus justice. We lean towards that injustice side as soon as we leave the presence of the Lord. As soon as we're not looking, focusing in on the presence of the Lord, we lose that edge on justice. <clears throat> so where justice is supposed to reign, we see injustice. Here's this trial, and then we see justice so far being completely thrown to the wayside. And then in verse 60, 60 and 61, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. 
That sound familiar? Isaiah 53, it's in our roots, right? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so open not his mouth by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He opened not his mouth. He did not defend himself against these accusations. He didn't say, no, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And you all should be condemned to death because you're the one bearing false against me. Nope. He endured this injustice for the times. He knows he must endure much worse than injustice for the time. He's still enduring through the injustice being brought against him. Continue in verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So they, again, they say he deserves death because he's blasphemed. Now it's interesting, in Luke 22, uh, it's recorded that Jesus started his, his little phrase there. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. So we see that at this point, the hearts of the high priests and the Sanhedrin, the council, are so hardened by bitterness, by bitter jealousy, by selfish ambitions, that they cannot believe. They were jealous of Jesus, because he called them of their father, the devil. You remember that story where he said, you are of your father, the devil. Because they said, oh, we are of our father, Abraham. But he said, you are the father of your devil, for you do not do what is right. Though they practiced righteousness of the law, and it made them bitter. So they were bitter, and they were jealous, because Jesus is telling them that what they're doing is just not cutting it. And they had selfish ambition in serving the Lord by upholding the law to look good. They honor, remember that verse, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I want to remind you also, we don't talk about the high priests and the Sanhedrin and all the wicked Jews to look at them and mock them. Look at them to ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Right? Put yourself in that place for just a moment. We all sin in so many different ways, right? I gave you one sin. It is a sin to say that Jesus does not love you. It is a sin to say that Jesus does not love you. He gave you a cross. We have the picture of the cross. Don't say that Jesus doesn't love you. For those who believe in him, he loves you. Don't say that Jesus. That's, that's a, to, to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing is a lie. To say that he doesn't want good, ultimately to say that Jesus does not want good, that's a lie about Jesus. That's sin. Sin in our hearts. So we don't talk about them just to, just to make mention of them. We talk about them to ask ourselves, who are we in the story? So think about what you call wisdom in this case. What is in your hearts? Put it up here for you. James 3, 14-16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, and every vile practice. So don't call, don't call everything wisdom. Don't call the the uh, don't call the slander. Don't call all that wisdom. To, you know, you slander a person. You say something about a person that's just slightly off. That's slandering that person. If it's slightly off, it's not fact. It's not truth. You say that about a person, even though you're seeking justice. That's not wisdom. That's selfish ambition. That's jealousy. You want something against that person. Be true. This says, what is in your heart? Right. He says. Uh, and selfish ambition in your hearts do not, be full, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. So be cautious, right? Search, search me, O God, and know my heart. Right? We're constantly checking to see what's in our hearts. Otherwise, we're tempted to fall into this wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's demonic. Wisdom that is of the world, that's earthly, that's filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's demonic, the Bible says. So the, G, the, the reason that James warns about the kind of demonic wisdom is because it ultimately led Jesus to the cross. James has good reason to mention his selfish ambition and his bitter jealousy because it led Jesus to the cross. We see it in the Pharisees. We see it sometimes in our own hearts. Don't we? <coughs> so back to Mark. 
back in Mark 14. It says uh, in verse 62, it says, uh, look what Jesus says. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So you remember what Andrew talked a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago in Daniel 7. It prophesies about this one who would come to the Ancient of Days and he would be riding on the clouds. Right? Here comes Jesus and he says, I'm going to be that guy. I'm still that guy. I'm the one riding on the clouds. Yes, I'm going to be riding on the clouds. It's a sign of judgment. That's what that is. But he says, but I'm going to be the one. I'm still that guy. The promise of a king that would have all dominion and glory is still here. So even those who are looking on right, had lost all hope because Jesus is just being falsely accused and going through an unjust trial, an unjust trial. He says, no, I'm still that guy. I'm still the one who's going to be seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds. I'm still that king. Jesus was presented as a humble king on a donkey at the triumphal entry. And now he says, I'm the king riding on the clouds. You will see me riding on the clouds. See, Jesus knew who he was. Though they bore false witness, false testimony, he held to what was true about him and that promise, that promise that would be fulfilled about him. And he was pushing forward hope for others as well. So in the face of injustice and false witness, Jesus remained true to the word. Right? I think that's another reminder to us. How much scripture do we know? How much, how much scripture do we keep up here? How much scripture do we memorize? When do we turn to the scriptures when it's really, really tough? We've got to remember, yo, even when injustice is being done against you, you've got to turn to the scriptures. Be true about the promises of God. Jesus remembered who he was. He said, I, I am the king, I'm the God. And he said it, and even, though, even though it was going to lead him to death, ultimately, right? Look what they say. What do they do? They condemn him as deserving death. So indeed, the proverb is true. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. That's in Proverbs 29.10. Indeed, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. They were not seeking justice in the trial. They were not seeking truth in this trial. They were seeking the life of only the only upright man who ever walked the earth. That's just, it's insane to me. But, again, a word of caution very careful about the, having the appearance of upholding justice and truth and wisdom while holding sin in your hearts. Remember James, remember this. Remember this, okay? Be very, very careful about that, having, giving that appearance. Yeah I, yeah, I care about justice. I care about wisdom. I care about truth. And yet, in your heart, there's just bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, that's a really, really tough one. That one could be very, very, very subtle at a time, right? You're, you're appearing to do something good, but there's a selfish ambition. Ultimately, you don't care if that person's sandwich is burned or not. I mean, this is just a real minor example. Think about it. You know, why do we serve? You know, why do we seek to serve? Yeah, make good sandwiches. Well, ultimately, because we're serving the people, we're not serving ourselves. But if we're just like, eh, whatever, burned egg. Yeah. Uh, well, that doesn't actually show that we're, you know, giving giving selflessly of ourselves. So just a minor example. So be very, very careful about giving the appearance of upholding justice and truth and wisdom while holding sin in your heart. Now look at verse 65 in Mark 14. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So here it begins, the, so the physical suffering of Christ. They're spitting on him, they're beating him, they're covering him, they're mocking him, and they're just punching him, hitting him. They received him with blows. Even though there's an unjust trial, nothing good, nothing just has come out of this trial, and yet they're still already beating him, hitting him. Why? So what? And remember, remember, I just want to kind of center us again. This is Jesus. This is God. This is the eternal word. Like John 1 says, this is the eternal word, the word who is with the Father. Jesus himself said in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This is Jesus who had all glory before the world existed. This is Jesus who came down as a man. Right Before the world existed, he sat upon, he was, before the world existed, he had all glory. And now he's being spat upon, he's being beaten, he's being mocked. For what? For what? For upholding truth? For healing people? For giving people life? For feeding thousands? That's the injustice that Jesus is suffering at this point? He's being beaten for it and mocked for it? 
spit on? This is God. This is Jesus in humility. He came as a man. And yet he came in power, healing people, giving people life, bringing people out of the dead. And yet here people are mocking him and beating him. The physical suffering of Christ. And now we start to see that. And also the emotional suffering of Christ. I remember who said it. Somebody said that God has emotions. I think that was Catherine as well. God does have emotions. Jesus has emotions. Jesus felt sorrow. Remember, what is sorrow? Sorrow is not physical pain. Sorrow, that's something you feel in here. That's something you feel when you get you know, slandered by a friend, when you get slandered by your brothers, your sisters, your own blood. That's what sorrow is. You feel it in your heart. There's emotions. Jesus felt. He suffered emotionally. His people. These are his people, right? <clears throat> So you think, uh, you think he liked being mocked by his people? See, this is the crux of the truth. If you remember in John 1, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. These are his own people. The Jews are his own people. He was born a Jew. He came to his people, the ones he loved. He is God. God loves his people. He came to them, and they did not receive him. And now, it says they're receiving him with blows. One time they finally receive him and they're punching him and they're beating him. They're spitting on him. Indeed, it's true. It's a sad, sorrowful, sorrowful thing. Jesus' own people, his people, how much he loves them and they're doing this to him. See, remember, Jesus had all glory before time and yet he was willing to come down and live as a man. He lived as we live, as we live yet without sin. And yet, he still suffered at the hands of injustice. So that's why I also say, be very, very careful about accusing God of not loving you, not liking you, not wanting good for you. See, why do you strive for the things that you strive for? Why do you want to be healed? Why do you want to be delivered from bondage? Why do you want to have life? Why do you want all these things? Because first, if you fail to see that Jesus did all of these things out of love, you will fail to see that there's a greater purpose for saving you than just to save you and just to heal you. You're going to miss the fact that Jesus showed love to you so that you could show love to others as well. See, that's extremely important here as well. Why do you want the things that you want? Do you want to receive love and show love to others? Or you just want to receive and have receive Jesus and have a great life. And you want everything to be good. Be very, very careful with that. So as we continue, we're going to turn over to Mark 15. So now I'll kind of title it, Truth and God's Sovereignty. We're going to look for that in this next passage of Scripture. So Mark 15. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So we see Pilate here, the, uh, the priests and everybody, they take him to Pilate. The first question Pilate asks in this text is, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't deny it, right? Jesus affirms it. He says, well, you said so. But remember, remember what's in, in Jesus' mind. Remember what it is to be a king, right? Didn't just mean king of a people. In Jesus' mind, he's thinking, yeah, I am the king. I'm upholding steadfast love. I'm upholding faithfulness. I'm upholding truth. That is what Jesus was concerned about. It says in John 18, 37, it's the same story, but in John 18, 37, Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So he's talking to Pilate in John 18. This is what one of the conversations that actually happens when Pilate takes him inside the question and he says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth to the truth. So Jesus' primary concern here is for truth, to uphold steadfast love and faithfulness and to uphold truth. So let me ask you this. Do you know truth 
would you know truth when you saw it? It's an interesting question. Pilate actually asked something similar. He said, what is truth? He said, what is truth? And Jesus said, I came down for the truth. And Pilate said, what is truth, man? Well, what we know first thing is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus himself claimed to be the truth. So Jesus is the truth by which everything else needs to be filtered. He is the ultimate truth. He also said, he also called the spirit, the spirit of truth in John 16, 13. The spirit of truth will come to you, he says. So the spirit is truth. The spirit upholds that truth as well as, we, as he comes to abide with us. So all truth has to be viewed ultimately through Jesus and through the spirit. And all truth comes from the source, that is, Jesus, truth, the ultimate truth. So we have to have our truth goggles on, if you will, and that is, that is to have Christ to filter everything through that. And so we see in this story the Jews who failed to see that, they failed to believe in Christ, they failed to believe Jesus as the truth, and that is why they were bearing false testimony and condemning Jesus to death. They failed to see the ultimate truth, the source of of truth and they failed to believe. And I assure you, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will not know truth. You will be deceived. Kind of a tough thing to grasp. If you don't have Christ, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came to die, to, be, to suffer and die for sinners and to be raised again, and everything else is kind of just water. You're walking, walking through water. It doesn't Nothing, no, no secure ground without that truth, ultimately. That is the gospel. Everything else has to come through the gospel first. So let's look at verses 3 through 5 again. He says, And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So the, the priests, they're there and they're accusing him of all these things. Again, repeat trial, basically. And they're like, yo, Pilate, he did all these things. They, they bear more false witness about him. And they're accusing him. And Pilate's like, yo, Jesus, you can, are you going to respond to that? And it says that Pilate was amazed because he remained silent. Why was Pilate amazed? Well, in John, again, I'm referring back to John. There's another story where uh, Jesus and Pilate have a conversation inside. And Jesus, one of the things that Jesus says to Pilate, uh, well, Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And that's why I said, truth and God's sovereignty. See, Jesus found it again important to remind everybody that it is ultimately God who is sovereign here. It's ultimately God who's giving the authority to Pilate. It's not Pilate who's got the authority to put Jesus to death. It's God who is ultimately in control. This is, this is crazy. Think about this. This is God in control of Jesus' life at this point. Right? That's why he said in the garden, Lord, if, if this, pass, this cup could pass from me, so be it, but thy will be done. He was submitting himself to God and here's God leading him down this path of sorrow. This is God. He says, God is sovereign over this. Does God give you authority, Pilate? You don't have authority. Thought Jesus was Jesus thought it important to remind us that God has ultimate sovereignty over everything. God planned the details for what was happening here, what was happening now, and He gave the authority to Pilate. So that's why when we when He comes back out to the Jews and He says, "Yo, here's here's your king," and then they accuse Him of everything, and they He's like, "Yo, you gonna answer them or what?" He kept silent. That's why, that's why Pilate was amazed, because he had authority to release him, or to crucify him. But Jesus submitted himself ultimately to the Father, and to the authority of that ruler that the Father had given power to, even if it meant death. <clears throat> and uh, if, if you remember again in Isaiah 53, what does it say? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So Jesus is fulfilling the scripture that says God is the ultimate one who is in control. It is the will of the Lord to crush him. Not the will of the Jews. Not the will of the Pharisees. Not the will of Pilate. It was ultimately the will of God to crush Jesus. 
that such for a second. It was the will of God to put him to grief. It was the will of God to make Jesus Christ walk the way of sorrow. It was the will of God to make him ultimately hang on a cross and die. See, God is sovereign over all these things. But he still desires good out of it. He knew. He knew. The way of steadfast love, showing the greatest way he could show steadfast love, was to die. He knew. He saw beyond just the pain and suffering. And he said, it's the will, it's my will to crush you because of all the people, all the worship will all be worth it. So it seems absolutely insane. So back to a kind of a ground level here. It seems absolutely insane and absurd to us that the Jews wanted, oh, I remember where I was going with this. So what happens in the next portion of the story? I remember what I was going with this. So in uh, verses 6 through 15, I actually want to read this before I go, go, go too far ahead of myself. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as usual, as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, but rabbits instead. So this is where I was going with that. It seems absolutely insane to me, to myself, when I'm reading this. Okay, I don't get it. The Jews wanted a rebel and a murderer instead of the only sinless man to ever live. And I had to wrestle with him. Like, this is in the Bible, but what? What? Here's Jesus, the most compassionate man on the earth, the most loving man on the earth, the most giving, sacrificial man on the earth. Would you rather have a rebel and a murderer? What? Like, this is insanity. And I was reminded. Remember what I said about seeing truth? Would you know truth if you saw it? They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe everything that Jesus did. They didn't believe it was ultimately pointing to who he was. They just thought, eh, it's a free hand now. How many times do we do that? How many times do we take for granted the graciousness, the goodness, the, the wonder of who God is? I could say like worship, about worship. How many of you experience just joy and, and, and overwhelming you know, happiness during worship at times? I'm not saying that that's not true. It's good. It's a good thing to experience that. But it is a gift to worship the God of the universe. It is a gift to worship your Creator. It is a gift to have a heart full of reverence and awe for your God. That is a gift. Do not take that for granted, folks. Worship wholeheartedly. And if you're having a hard time worshiping, you're thinking, oh man, this is, this is so sad. You know, the song's just not going the way I want it to. The song's just too slow, too fast. Think about who you're worshiping. Don't think about you. Think about God. Think about Jesus. Think about His love, His passion for you, His goodness, His love, His mercy. Think about God. Don't think about yourself. It is a gift to worship. Worship God. Don't worship yourself. So as we say, it seems absolutely insane and absurd for these people to choose the rabbis that they did because they were blinded to the truth. It was truth. Jesus was the, again, like I said, he was the most compassionate. He was the most perfect man that ever walked the face of the earth. They missed it. They missed the truth. So they were willing to give that up for a murderer or a thief rebel and insurrectionist. So don't don't we judge based on bitter jealousy and envy? And if we do, this is where it leads ultimately. Keep in mind, this is where it leads. If we're judging based on bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is what it ultimately leads to. Complete insanity and absurdity. So that's why it's worldly and demonic wisdom because we're so blinded by it that we wouldn't see the truth or the sovereignty of God for that matter. So in John 19, I wanted to point this out real quick again. In John 19, there was actually a back and forth between Pilate and the Jews in which the Jews ultimately responded when Pilate said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? The Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. Oh, that must have broken Jesus' heart. I mean, if, if it weren't broken already, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Not even no king but Yahweh. At that point, they were so far gone. Like, Caesar's our king. We don't even know Jesus. 
such a sad thing. Such a sad thing. The king, the only king, according to Proverbs, by steadfast love and faithfulness, throne is upheld. And yet he's seen as unjust. They would rather have Caesar as their king. So we see just how far down they've come at this point. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Continue on in the text. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, And what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said, said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them for rabbis. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So scourging in that time was a Roman judicial penalty consisting of, se- consisting of a severe beating and a multi-lashed whip. You know that cat-a-nine tail? You know cat-a-nine tail? Well, the cat-a-nine tail in Roman times was this whip that had nine threads that came off of it and they would put bone and glass in it so that when they whipped the person it would just completely shred skin in it. I won't get into the details. It was a nasty, nasty thing. It says that Jesus was scourged. Why? Listen, Pilate, Pilate himself just said, why, what evil has he done? And yet he's still like, you know what, I'm going to scourge this guy. And then I'm going to send him to crucify See, Pilate missed it. Pilate said, what is truth? He was so close, and yet he missed it. He fell short. He didn't grasp the truth. Moving on. Verse 16. I think I have one place. Verses 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. I don't particularly understand the purpose of this. It's not Jesus is a threat. Other than so that everybody could watch. Okay, think about that. So they brought together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So as if it weren't enough that they scorched him, Within an inch of his life, they would have scourged him. They continued to beat him, continued to mock him. What was happening as this was happening? Not only did they mar his body beyond recognition, they were taking away his identity as the true king by making a mockery of him. See, it wasn't enough to miss the truth from these people. It wasn't enough. They had to make a complete mockery and take away the identity of Jesus by making a joke very careful about making jokes about holy things. Be very careful about missing the seriousness of a holy matter. Very, very careful about that. <coughs> Trying to take away the identity of Jesus. He always the king of the Jews. Hail, bow down and everything. Remember, he wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was the king of all those who believe in his name. My king. So see, Jesus knew who he was. But he also knew how he had to get there. He also knew his via nalagosa, his way of sorrow, had to be taken. He had to take this road. So the way of sorrow, a couple of things that we can see in the way of sorrow so far. Number one, the height of the sinfulness of man. So in this way of sorrow, we see the height of the sinfulness of man. Missing truth, beating Jesus injustice, all of these things, they show the height of the sinfulness of man. Like we said, if we hold ourselves up against that passage, how many we fall into almost every one of those categories. We mock Jesus, we make Jesus a liar, right? We talked about that. So we fall into that, we see the sinfulness of man. But, but, we also see the love of the king for his people. Don't miss that. We see the love of the king for his people. Our sins, see, with the height of the sinfulness of man, we see our sins 
being carried in the body and the soul of Jesus. We also see the love of the King. It is true, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Beautiful scripture. Thank you, Brian, for giving that one to me. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus at this point isn't to the end. But it seems dire, it seems hard, it seems just overwhelming, and yet Jesus is like, God, I love you guys. Shouting it from all of eternity, shouting it to you. I love you. I'm a king, but I have steadfast love for everyone who believes in me. Hear it. Jesus says, I love you. It's crazy. Having loved his own, even to the end. Even those who were his enemy at that time, he loved. Keep in mind, these people made themselves an enemy of God by giving up truth, by giving up the law, by saying, yeah, we're going to give him justice, and yet casting the law out to the side. Threw it away. They didn't want the law anymore. They didn't want King Jesus. They wanted King Caesar. They didn't want King Yahweh. They wanted King Caesar. Very careful. Who is king in your heart? Who is king in your life? Is it Jesus? That sounds like a Jesus that I want. A Jesus that loves me. But is it Jesus? Do you view your enemies as Jesus does? A good reminder for us. Do you view your enemies as Jesus does? Jesus, may you your enduring suffering at that person's hand to bring them to repentance. Think about that. Did you catch that? See, Jesus is saying, I'm enduring suffering from you. At the same time, there are some of you who will be saved. There are some of you who I'm going to see worshiping me at that final day, and that is worth it to me. So, Jesus saw it. You see it with you being suffering, right? Why don't we punch you, the guy in the face, when you punch his face? Well, God might be using you to show that person something. He might use you to bring that person to repentance, to see the love of Jesus. What if? Well, think about that. What if you get punched in the face and you don't punch the other person? They're like, whoa, that's how Jesus loves me. I get it now. What if? What if? 2 Timothy 2.24, it says, patiently enduring evil. This is the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord must patiently endure evil. What is it to patiently endure? We endure evil patiently because of the love that was given to us and the love that we can give to others. So this leads us to the practical implications of Via Dolorosa. Practical implications of Via Dolorosa, the gospel and suffering. You can turn with me to 1 Peter. This is fantastic. Bear with me just a few more minutes. We'll get through this together. This is really, really, really important. The gospel and suffering. And I'll show you why. Practical implications for Via Dolorosa. So you and I, folks, those who believe in Christ, you and I are on a road, a way of sorrow. You and I are on a Via Dolorosa. Let me show you. So in 1 Peter 2, Peter gives us some commentary on the events leading up to the cross. Chapter 2, verse 22. All along with you. He committed, this is referring to Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, catch that? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is Jesus. He said he did not revile in return in return when being reviled. His being, so when he was suffering, he did not threaten anybody, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's why he was remaining silent, because in his mind he's like, Father, you got this. It's your will. It's your will, but I want to keep your will at this moment. I'm going to remain silent, even though I'm being accused falsely. I'm going to remain silent. I'm going to trust you. He was trusting in his father, because his father is the one who judges justly. He wasn't submitting himself ultimately to man, who judges unjustly, who's submitting to the will of the Father. This is why he remains silent. So even through, this is interesting, even through injustice, it says God is working justice. 
So in the face of injustice, Jesus, Jesus is facing injustice in this trial. Everybody's bearing false witness, and yet God the Father is still working justice. Remember when I said God can work all things out for good? God is. God's still working things. Even in a false trial, how can good come from that? God's working justly. I'll show you why. So for God to work justly, it begs the question. Here, it begs the question. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. If Jesus was submitting himself to the Father who judges justly, why did he suffer for being sinless? Anybody catch that? Anybody wonder that? If Jesus is sinless, and God the Father, he's submitting himself to God the Father who judges justly, why is Jesus suffering and ultimately going to death? Is that just? just for Jesus to suffer for being sinless? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was just that Jesus should suffer and die on the cross, but why? Are you with me so far? It's just for Jesus to suffer in the hands of the Father. Why? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin. I didn't finish it yet, but bear with me. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. Got this today, I was like, oh my goodness. When I actually caught what was, what was happening here, follow along with me. He, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. He was sinless. To become sin. Just to pause and think about that. The Father was placing our sin on Jesus, so it was just for the Father to judge sin. Not the sinless man. At this point, the Father is taking our sin, everything that our sins, all of it, all of our sins, taking the Father's taking it, and he's just, boom, on Jesus. Jesus is now bearing all of our sins. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. Jesus became sin as in he bore our sins, right? He bore our sins on the cross, meaning he covered himself in our sins. Catch this. He took on the appearance of, of sin. He became sin. Took all of it. He took on the appearance of sin. Now you ever, here's, that, here's just a provoking thought. You ever wonder what sin looks like? Look at Jesus. I'll tell you why. Look at Jesus going to the cross. Isaiah 52, 14 records for us. This is Old Testament, by the way, prophesying about Jesus as if it had already been fulfilled. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children, that of the children of mankind. That's speaking of Jesus. He was so marred beyond human semblance. He wasn't recognized as a human. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You want to know what sin looks like? Look at the body of Jesus. So marred beyond human semblance. So just completely torn apart that he wasn't even recognized as a child of mankind. So warped, so bruised, so swollen. He didn't even look like a human anymore. You want to know what sin looks like? That's what sin looks like in your hearts. Looks bruised, warped, battered. There's no longer an image of God any longer because you are so warped and torn by your sin. You want to know what sin looks like? Look at Jesus going to the cross. Beyond human semblance, beyond human recognition, beyond the semblance of mankind. That's what your sin is, folks. It marred you, it scarred you, it's torn you ripped you up. You no longer look like God any longer. You've been marred. You've been warped. You've been swollen. You've been beaten by sin. That's what sin looks like, folks. That's sin in our hearts. We no longer recognize the image of God. Sin mars us beyond recognition. That was absolutely crazy to me. I never, I never thought about that. What if... What, what does sin look like? Jesus. Even the nights... Even in the sin, we look at Jesus and we say, He was so modern. Think about that. We look at Jesus. We think about sin. We don't look at us. We don't look at us. There's grace for you, folks. We don't look at us when we think about sin. We look at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus bore our sins. You no longer carry your sins in your flesh or in your heart. Jesus bore He made him to who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. God took all of our sin. Boom, on Jesus. And then he said, Jesus, I'm taking your righteousness. Boom, he put it on us. We got the righteousness of Christ now. That's what happens. That's the transaction of the cross. That's the transaction of the suffering of Christ. So what does it mean for us? Again, back to 1 Peter. 
Backing up, I know we just covered verses 23 through 25. Back up to verse 21 for me. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is tough, folks. This is tough. He left you an example so that you would follow in his steps. Remember, this is what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Anyone who would come after me, let him take up his cross, lay down his life, and follow me. This is what it means, means folks. We look at the suffering of Christ and we say, I'm going to endure that. Christ endured it for me, for my sin. I'm going to endure it for the sake of righteousness. He left us an example. And this is why I say there are practical implications to the suffering of Christ. Our Via Dolorosa, Christ's Via Dolorosa, is now our Via Dolorosa. He left us an example in going to the cross. I've already given you kind of a piece of that, a glimpse of that, when we talk about loving our enemies. What is it to love our enemies? When Jesus said, I'm going to let you beat me. I'm going to let you talk bad about me. I'm going to let you, you know, give me an unjust trial. I'm going to let you do that because I love you. Do we do that? Are we willing to suffer at the hands of somebody else so that Christ's love can be shown? There are practical implications to the Via Dolorosa. <clears throat> Um, Jesus' way of sorrow or Jesus' via dolorosa is the gospel. Keep that in mind. First, ultimately, first and foremost, that is the gospel. When we look at the suffering of Christ going to the cross and dying on the cross, that is the gospel. That's what that means. Ultimately, don't miss that. That is the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. For the, those of us who believe in him, we have everlasting life. Believe in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. First and foremost. There are other implications, one being that we are to now live as Christ lived. Even in that little glimpse of his life, when he's going to the cross, Jesus gave us an example to live by. Peter tells us that it is the will of Jesus that we follow his steps. So what, folks, what are we doing for the gospel? What are we doing with the gospel that we've now been given? That's the question. What are you going to do with the gospel? Now that you know that Jesus saved you from sins, now that you know that Jesus freed you from sins to worship. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do? You're going to go and give to someone else. Go and give to someone else. Go and show somebody else just how much that king loves them. Go and show them. Also think it's important to point out here, back up another verse in verse 20. And we're, again, we're in 2 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2, I'm sorry. Verse 20. For what credit, credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, we're not punished for our sins. We're not punished for our sins. If you do something wrong against somebody and you get punished for it, there's no reward for that. There's no payment back for that. We're not paying back our sins. We're suffering for the sake of righteousness. And that, my friends, is a gracious thing. Says. Said, do you find it a gracious thing to suffer? Do you find it a gracious thing when you get in a car accident in your car? Boom, the car's told, now I gotta find another car. Do you find it a gracious thing? I don't know. It's a gracious thing. Jesus said it's a gracious thing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 10 through 11. This is Jesus saying this. This is his sermon. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's Jesus. Number one, Jesus went out and he lived that, by the way. This is Jesus' sermon. He didn't just preach a sermon and say, there you go, have that, that's truth. He went and he lived it. He went to the cross. He bore all of these things. Every single one of these things came about in Jesus' life. And he endured, he endured and he inherited the kingdom, right? Well, blessed are you, others who will revile you. Right? We see that in Peter. He reviled, but did not revile in return. So if you're reviled, don't revile in return. That's a practical implication for you. Blessed are you're persecuted. And when others utter all kinds of evil against you. Does that sound like Jesus? Jesus got uttered all kinds of evil against. Everybody bore false witness against him, yet he endured. You're willing to bear false witness. You're willing to let people just come and say bad things about you, slander you. You're willing to go to an unjust trial? You're willing to submit yourself? Are you willing to entrust yourself to the one who judges just, justly? 
But it says, lastly, what Jesus says is, on my account. See, that's really, really important. Okay? Not all evil, not all wicked has a purpose found in Christ. But it can. Right? Not all suffering, suffering that you cause out of sin, that is not done on Christ's account. Suffering that's brought about because of righteousness. That is the suffering that's done on Christ's account. Peter, Peter's picking up on that. See, God does want us to suffer. That's, that is another tough thing to swallow, folks. But yes, Jesus does want us to suffer. And it's a good thing to endure suffering. But why? I'm not going to leave you hanging. The question is why? Why is it a good thing to suffer? Why does Christ want us to suffer? Look at chapter 4, verse 1 in 1 Peter. Just a, just a page over for me. It's an awful thing. 1 Peter, chapter 4, bringing this to a close, I promise. 1 Peter 4, 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There it is. That's your purpose. Why do you suffer? Why does Jesus want us to suffer? Because it means putting off sin. Suffering means putting off sin. You see, you do not become, you do not put off sin without pain. Unfortunately, our, um, putting off sin is a painful thing. Sometimes it hurts when you got to get rid of sin. Sometimes you got to suffer. You got to suffer to get rid of sin. That's why I say eradicate sin. It's a very, it's a heavy term. It means get rid of it. Do it. No matter what it takes. Cut off an arm, gouge out an eye, not physically, not literally, but do what it takes. Get it out. Get rid of sin. It's painful at times. It's suffering, and it's worth it to become more like Christ. Our purpose on earth is to live, live in the image of Christ. It's to live showing other people who Christ is. That's our purpose on earth. Go live that way, painfully, suffering at times. Yes, but that's a good thing, to suffer for righteousness' sake. That's what it means to suffer for righteousness' sake, is to put off sin. The only way to do that is to live free of sin. Live free. Experience that freedom and put it off. So, getting rid of sin is painful and only done through suffering, the Bible says. Not that we are suffering, not that we are suffering for our sins, but we are suffering for righteousness. Now, I will tell you this, okay? You may or may not suffer physically. You may or may not suffer physically. I cannot guarantee any of you that you will not go through physical, emotional suffering. You may go through heavy, heavy, heavy suffering. I don't know. I cannot tell you that. That is for you to continue to pursue Christ, pursue his will, and along the way, you will be brought suffering, whether it be physical or emotional. But folks, I can guarantee you, you will never suffer the eternal punishment of God if you put your trust in Christ Jesus. Never. That is a guarantee. That I can guarantee you. Trust in the gospel of Christ. That's how God multiplies the gospel, through suffering, eradicating sin, nailing it to the cross. So your Via Dolorosa is to share the love of Christ with others so that they may also experience the love of the gospel and the suffering of Christ. So we're going to come alongside our brothers and sisters. We're going to say, yo, Jesus loves you. And it was so, thank Robbie, thank you so much for saying that, you know, we've showed the love of Christ. What a blessing, folks, to be under that, right? To be submitting to Christ in a way that we're showing Christ's love to others. Hallelujah. Yes, that's so good. Let's do that all the more, right? Showing the love of Christ to others. That is what it's all about, whether it costs us suffering. Suffering may be giving your time, folks. When we ask for your time, to submit your time to Christ. That may be a form of suffering. I don't want to give up my Monday night. I don't want to give up my Sunday. Suffer. Give a little. Sacrifice a little. Faith that costs nothing, suffers nothing, and something else nothing, ultimately is worth nothing, right? Words of Martin Luther. So we're always carrying the, body, the death, we're always carrying the body, carrying in the body the death of Christ. So that's in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll actually get to that in a minute. So, yes, there we go. So the practical, we're talking about practical indications. So I bring this to a close. Kind of bring it all together. What is... Some, just some bullet points of what we're, what we're looking at here. First, hold fast to the gospel. Folks, I, I hope you got that from this text. I hope you got the gospel tonight that Jesus came to suffer and die. Jesus bore our sins in his flesh. Jesus lived a sinless life and yet became sin and the Father crushed him so that those who believe in him might have eternal life. That's it. Believe that Jesus Christ died for sins and you will be 
be saved. You will have eternal life. Hold fast to the gospel. Even for those who do believe, hold fast to that truth. Hold fast to the fact that Christ suffered. Christ suffered, and now we have an example. Live according to his example. Trust him. Trust the gospel. And then set your mind on the suffering of Christ, right? That's a really weird thought. Set your mind on the suffering of Christ. But it's there in the text in 1 Peter 4, 1, it says, uh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself. This is part of the armor that Christ has given us. Arm yourselves with the suffering of Christ, with the, the mind, having the mind of the suffering of Christ. So set your mind on the suffering of Christ. There are many implications to that. Yes, we're going to live out that same life of suffering. So set your mind on the suffering of Christ. And then love your neighbor and your enemies. Love your neighbor and your enemies. Patiently enduring evil, whether it be done to you or to others, and entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Now what I want to say the holding fast to the gospel, right? We don't owe God anything for our sins. We live free of the penalty and we're not enslaved to self-righteousness. That's why I reminded you of the gospel. There's always a tension between living for God and living for to pay God back for something. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is ultimately everything is paid for you. So, and then love your neighbor and your enemies, patiently enduring evil, whether it be done to you or to others, and trusting yourself to the one who judges justly. And then bearing the suffering of Christ in your body. Bearing the death of Christ in your body. And I, I wrote bearing the suffering of Christ in your body. I borrowed this from a couple of, from a few weeks ago in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.10 when it says, um, bear the death of Christ in your body. That's what Paul encourages them to do. So Christ was made perfect through suffering. Hebrews also says that. Christ was made perfect through suffering. As in he's the perfect example. He was made the perfect sacrifice and the perfect example through what he suffered. He was made perfect. And likewise, we are being made perfect. But what does that mean for us? To be made perfect for us means to be made more like Christ. That's what, that's what being made perfect means. Striving for righteousness that is only found in Christ. Bearing the death of Christ in our body. And then lastly, have that in there for the glory of God. Do it for the glory of God. Giving our lives, suffering for the glory of God. That is our ultimate purpose, and that is the greatest purpose. Again, borrowed from 2 Corinthians 4.10, to increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That is why we bear the suffering of the death of Christ in our bodies, to increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Live for the glory of God, folks. And lastly, lastly, by God's grace, you will endure your via dolorosa for God's glory. You will. I assure you, folks, there is hope. Putting your hope in the gospel, that is enough to secure that by God's grace you will endure your via dolorosa for God's glory. That is my encouragement. Your via dolorosa, via dolorosa, your way of suffering, according to the Bible, it will come about through Christ and His grace for you. So trust in His gospel, trust in His grace, and live for God's glory. God, I thank you for the time that we've had tonight. Lord, I just thank you for hearts and minds that you've given us, God, to be able to, God, understand these truths. God, I thank you for hearts and minds to be able to receive, God, your truth and, God, your word in our hearts and our lives and our minds. God, thank you for changing us into the image of your son as we do that, God. I thank you for how you're going to continue to do that, to do that Lord. God, we just entrust ourselves to you because you judge justly, God. May we not forget the gospel when times get impossible, hard, tough, Lord. May we look to our brothers and sisters who are looking like Christ and they would just trust you, God. May we trust you in all things. May we remember that Christ suffered so that we don't suffer for our sins. We suffer for Christ now. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53. Proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.